Welcome to the Foolproof Theology Podcast. My name is Chase Davis, and I'm your host here at Foolproof Theology. We like our theology like I like my bourbon, strong and well-aged. And so we are studying theology together, and I like to invite different Christian intellectuals to kind of share their perspective. Really, these are conversations I wanted to have anyways, and thought, so I thought I'd just share them with you guys, uh, with whoever's listening. Um, we do this live on Facebook so that you can ask questions as we go along chime in and hopefully we'll be able to answer those along the way. I'm really excited about my guest today. Uh, he's been part of my life in a kind of a roundabout way. Um, our, our paths crossed when I started planting the well with my uh, family and friends in Boulder, Colorado. And his daughter, Laura, and her husband, Marty, started attending our church and they went to a membership class. And all of a sudden, my guest showed up in the membership class one day and I was, I think, 24 at the time. And I was talking about things I had, I had no business talking about in some ways, and that's just kind of the inevitable reality of any pastor. But he uh, graced me enough to put up with whatever I said about expiation and propitiation and confusing those two terms uh, during that time. Um, and so he, I've always viewed him as somewhat of a mentor, and I've admired his uh, ministry from afar. Um, so it's a real privilege to have Dr. David Gustafson on the, uh, on the podcast today. He, he is the chair of Evangelism and Missiology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, or TEDS. Is that correct, uh, Dave? That's correct. That's right. Okay, great. Um, Dr. Gustafson, you're married. You have your wife, Sharon. You have four kids, Mark, Paul, Laura, Hannah, and you have grandkids as well who also uh, go to our church, which is awesome to have them at our church. Um, and what we're going to be doing today, um, and this podcast could last a long time, but it, we just may need to break it up into multiple episodes there's plenty to talk about because there's plenty I want to learn, and there's plenty I want to hear from you and your thoughts. As someone who's studied uh, church history and, and done work in the academy on missions and evangelism and contextualization, um, I'm just really excited to have you on the podcast today. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, now, you were a pastor for several years. I was looking over your CV this morning. Um, you know, went from crew to being a pastor for several years before moving into the academy. Um, as someone who's a pastor right now, but interested in scholarship, I'm just curious, what drove you to decide to make the transition from uh, full-time pastoral ministry to the academy? Yeah, good good question. Uh, I'm asked that periodically. Uh, and quite frankly, I mean, I loved seminary. I loved uh, when I was here at Trinity as a student, uh, <clears throat> would love to read the books. Uh, I'd take an exam as soon as the final exam was over, took a final exam, exam was over, I'd go to the bookstore to get my next term's books and start sure. reading. So just really enjoyed that. So I, I really had an interest in academics all along and uh, loved pastoral ministry. Uh, I served in two different churches uh, that really gave me a, a great understanding, a especially um, after I'd been on crew staff and mm. had learned a lot and really benefited from that experience even before I came to seminary. But then working in the local church has really um, given me an appreciation for uh, what God has for the local church. And mm. and I really tried to integrate both uh, what I'd learned from crew in terms of evangelism, discipleship, and how I would apply that in the local church. But I continue to have an interest in um, academics. So I did a DMIN, a doctor of ministry at Fuller um, in evangelism and church growth. And that actually oriented me toward a certain school of missiology. We can okay. talk about later. Yeah. Um, but, um, but then um, at, as a pastor, uh, beginning to have more interest in historical uh, areas and, uh, I began to uh, just write and actually started publishing in uh, some journals. Hmm. And that just kind of really started to uh, excite me even more in terms of uh, uh, academia. So decided uh, to pursue a PhD and uh, to do it in church history, which I really, really loved. Yeah. And so in some ways, Chase, you know, I was either a sort of scholarly pastor or I think I've been hopefully a pastoral scholar. Um, right. on this side of things. So it didn't seem uh, like too big of a shift uh, in terms of who I am and what I've been doing. For sure. But, uh, you know, I feel really called in terms of where I am right now, uh, being able to, to train people, equip people, and engage in scholarship, engage in Christian thinking in a 
at a certain level um, where I, I had opportunities in, in the pastorate to do that, but here I really have uh, wide open possibilities uh, to do that as well. So that's right. a little bit of that journey. That's awesome. Yeah. And the, and the kind of pastor theologian concept is really, um, really actually historically rooted. I love that you're passionate about that. I, I've always, uh, there's an organization in Chicago called the Center for Pastor Theologians, and they do some great work. I enjoy listening to their content, but that's a that's, you know, it may seem like a big leap for a lot of people, but obviously for you, you kind of had a vision for being that. And I think that's pretty awesome. Um, you know, a lot of times when people go into the academy, uh, like in my THM, I was required to write a thesis for that. And most people wouldn't uh, dare to touch that, not because it's not good or anything, but because it's just on a shelf in a library somewhere and it's a scholarly journal. The only people who are interested in it are people who are specialists, but I'm always curious, you know, you put your life into two dissertations at this point, but as far as your um, PhD dissertation, which was on um, D.L. Moody and uh, Swedish church planting or missiology, is that correct? Yeah, it was, it's titled D.L. Moody and Swedes Shaping an Evangelical Identity Among Swedish Mission Friends. Okay, so. <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, you know what, what I'm always curious yeah. about, and what's really hard to our, to really get across to people, and maybe you can in like an abstract before the dissertation, but what is it that, you know, at that point in your life, what what sparked your curiosity to go like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give three, four years of my life to researching this topic. What, what made you curious about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have served uh, in the Evangelical Free Church of America for uh, my whole ministry here since uh, seminary, so um, some 30 years now. And uh, which began actually the Evangelical Free Church of America began, uh, it's a merger of the Swedish and the Norwegian Danish Evangelical Free Church group. So they were Scandinavian okay. uh, groups and they had come from a, a pietist history what I'd call Scandinavian pietism. But uh, because of American revivalist influences in Scandinavia and because so many Scandinavians migrated, including my ancestors to the mm. United States, I began to see in our history um, uh, fingerprints of what I would call Scandinavian pietism and American revivalism and felt mm. as though the narrative that had been written was more of a idea that these people had just been transported and that, and my conclusion was that they had somewhat missed this confluence of these two movements. Okay. Um, which really ended up with, uh, the Evangelical Free Church of America, which Trinity is associated with uh, that mm. particular um, ecclesial body. And so um, it, it answered a question for me and hopefully for, for a number of other people. The other real benefit is Deal Moody was the Billy Graham of the 19th century. Right. So he had a profound influence on American evangelicalism, both right. in terms of his ecclesiology, his sort of uh, ironic spirit of cooperation with, with others. And, and so you have uh, subsequent evangelists like Billy Sunday and Billy Graham who follow very much um, in that um, tradition of, of Moody. So uh, Moody was also fun just as an evangelist to study. So okay. even though it's church history and I teach obviously now in evangelism, I, I, I'm able to really understand. And uh, that, that's the dissertation gave me that. Uh, that permission to really look at um, at Moody, and of course, nobody had really looked at his influence on Swedes or Swedish immigrants. Sure, yeah. So that was uh, a contribution to knowledge for sure, and I think that's awesome. I, that's one thing that I appreciate about scholarship. I I told my wife Kim when I when I kind of discovered that part of uh, you know what you just mentioned, contributing to knowledge, so to speak. Um, the the opportunities that are that are out there how do i place in conversation two people that don't seem to really talk to each other or, or connect how might these mm -hmm. two influence and then you just get to study how those influence i actually i know not many people enjoy that but i i love hearing about that stuff and um it sounds like part of your academic journey was deeply related to your own story your own journey in ministry and um i think that's a pretty pretty cool thing uh to do i'm sure it was a lot of hard hard work um, did that ever get published or, or anything that somebody could pick it up? It, it is. So um, so I actually studied, uh, you know, and this is when you do dissertation or a PhD program, you're, you're always generally wanting to ask this question of, you know, where do I go? Who's the best mm. advisor? Uh, who's the best supervisor? 
Um, and I looked at, at American uh, institutions, seminaries, uh, universities that might have like a Scandinavian studies program. Mm -hmm. uh, people wouldn't know the church history piece. Um, and then I, so, so then I started looking at Sweden, uh, particularly because one of my, you know, the theme was uh, Moody and Swedes. Yeah. And so um, ended up uh, finding uh, Linköping University. Uh, and my advisor, uh, whose name's Shel Leon, still teaches there. Uh, you know, he had a PhD in church history from Lund in Swedish church history and a PhD from UC Santa Barbara in California in religious studies. So he understood really what I was doing and yeah. was just a, a great uh, mentor for me to be able to to shepherd my research. That's and so, so that's really why I, why I, I uh, landed there. Uh, awesome. Linköping University is part of the Swedish system, part of the EU system, and uh, it the European system is different than the American system for how you approach the, the PhD, how you write the dissertation, how you defend it. All of those are, are slightly different, but but Linköping University actually published the dissertation gotcha. and distributed it. So that's they awesome. just yeah so that's that's how and uh, they also have it online okay. so anybody who wants to can just search something like gustafson feel moody uh, and weeds and it should pop up as a pdf that's awesome thanks for sharing that um well i wanted to kind of get into the heart of the conversation part of the reason i reached out to you is we you know i've known you for a while and respected your work and then we interacted on facebook regarding current situations in our at least in our country um and we interacted on the topic of Leslie Newbegin. You you said you were revisiting some of his uh, his work and thinking. And if you're watching on Facebook right now, you're we would love to have you ask any questions or chime in at any point. Um, we'll try to get to those as we go along. But I guess for you, uh, Dr. Gustafson, is you know when we think of Leslie Newbegin, I guess it might help some people to know who was he and what were some of his thoughts that could help us today or that maybe have informed how we approach. Uh, contextualization. We may even need to explain that term because it's kind of a big term. Uh, but why don't we start with Leslie Newbegin, if you want? Sure, sure. So this summer, I taught a course um, uh, on uh, gospel cultures in church and Western contexts. Uh, so we really begin with Newbegin. He asked this question, how can the West uh, be saved? And he actually, um, very quickly, I would describe him uh, as the father of the missional church movement. Now I'll qualify that. I had mentioned Donald McGavern when I had studied at Fuller uh, Theological Seminary, which was the school to go to study church growth. Okay. Uh, Donald McGavern. So also interestingly, these two men had sort of a parallel experience, McGavern and Newbegin. They were okay. both missionaries in India. Uh, McGavern, um, as he studied and, and did, missionary work and 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 studied missiology while he was there came up with what was known as the the homogeneous unit principle uh, as a, a means of gathering people who are of uh, similar backgrounds and affinities all right yeah. and so he comes back to fuller after his experience uh, in india and uh, begins what becomes known as the church growth movement so fuller okay. was very centered that was actually a school of missiology Okay. Concurrently, you have Leslie Newbegin, who's uh, serving as a bishop in Mastris, uh, India, mm. and having a, an experience in a very pluralistic context, working with uh, converts to faith uh, who are um, very bold in their faith. And uh, so, so Newbegin um, has this experience uh, as well in India. He goes back to his home uh, in Birmingham, um, in Birmingham, uh, England, uh, when he retires from the mission field, he leaves in 1974. He's teaching at Selly Oaks College in Birmingham, and he realizes how how the how his home country has mm -hmm. obviously been affected by um, uh, secularism. Uh, what he begins to term as, as post-Christendom. Okay. Uh, the assumptions of Christianity were no longer uh, there as they had been. And he, he realizes that the church in England and the church in the West needs a missionary encounter. Again, mm -hmm. it needs to have the, the character of a missionary. So he begins to write uh, books like The Open Secret, Gospel and Pluralist Society, 
And uh, so in, in America in the West, you have McGavern and church growth, and then you have mm -hmm. the, this burgeoning movement in the late uh, uh, 20th century, and it's come full bloom in this uh, century, right? Uh, or millennium or however we want to describe it, sure. uh, which is the, the missional church movement. So okay. while I would say McGavern was the father of the church growth movement, which really worked well in what I call late Christendom or post yeah. uh, late Christendom. Yeah, it worked well in late Christendom and it still does in areas like in the United States where I would say we're in in late Christendom. Yeah. But in context of post Christendom, Newbegin is the missiologist. Okay. And so that's why in this particular century, as we're experiencing even challenges and and kind of the waning of a cultural Christendom, mm. uh, the missiology of Newbegin continues to, to play a, a, a significant role. Now, as, as I mentioned, while a number of people may not know uh, the name Newbegin, they'll know pe people like Tim Keller, right. the student of, of Newbegin, Daryl Guder, yeah. um, Craig Van Gelder, um, um, Alan Hirsch. Right. Uh, these, these are, they're second generation, but they've just really learned and gleaned uh, from, from Newbegin. That's awesome. That, I, I had no idea about that kind of, uh, not, I, I don't know if you'd call them rival, just different takes on, uh, on that experience. And it helps me as a pastor, you know, I've always felt this kind of tear between, on the one hand, this missional movement that's talking about contextualizing the gospel, and we even use it at the well. We use uh, Keller's article, The Missional Church, which uh, kind of recounts Newbegin's story. So if you're a member at the well, you've at least been exposed to that concept. And we kind of pride ourselves on being a missional church. Yet at the same time, we have all these influences in the way we go about our ecclesiology that are church growth oriented. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's a constant feeling of tension there where we're trying to reach people. And I would I would I would think I would qualify Boulder as a post-Christian context, but we still have late Christian influence uh, around our city or even people who move here who come from a late Christian, right, into a post-Christian. Yeah. And so they're expecting a church growth uh, ecclesiology. And yeah. they come to our church with a missional ecclesiology, and it's like there's a bit of a tension there because of a missed expectation and what they want from church. Yeah, I think you, you have your your finger right on it. Mm. Yeah. What um, well with with New Newbegin, there's a lot of different thoughts he has that Keller's written on. Yeah. Um. What What were some of his big ideas yeah. that could help us? I mean, it, you know, obviously, uh. You know, we live in a kind of contentious time, and in particularly my context, it's post-Christian. Um, what were some ideas that could help us as we dialogue um, in such? I don't know how you would call it today. You know, we've talked about successor ideology offline, and uh, and some other ideologies out there, but things seem to be very contentious right now. So, how might Newbegin inform us as to how to have conversations well? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Newbegin would uh, say, understand your, your context. So understand uh, it, today our context would be heavily influenced by postmodernity. Hmm. And we don't have time to go into that whole history. It's been, you know, postmodernity has been around since the 20th century. It's hmm. coming full bloom, the seeds of postmodernity. And it's, um, and, you know, critical theory, those kinds of things are, those seeds are coming full blown, uh, right. in fl full bloom right now. They, they've germinated, they've been growing, and now they're, they're here. He would say, understand our context. Uh, if, if you read Gospel in a Pluralist Society, you know, the first part of it, he's just analyzing thinkers, uh, modernity. He, he does refer to post-modernity toward the end of his life. He sees this shift. He would say, understand those. And uh, Newbegin was, in terms of an apologist, uh, he wasn't necessarily an evidentialist, uh, just talking about evidence for Christianity, but he was a presuppositionalist. Right. He tried to kick the slats out from underneath other philosophies or even religions, you know, right. he's, he's solid, uh, a solid Christian in terms of his convictions uh, yeah. of the historic gospel. So, so often uh, he does it with charity, he does mm. it with grace, mm. um, but, but he, he would take that, that approach. And so I think that's what he would do today. He would look at 
at uh, the presuppositions of what maybe successor ideology or um, all of the other names that are being associated with critical theory uh, right. today. And he would say, okay, let's look at the what they're based on. What's the presuppositions? And let's let's see if there's a coherence, if there's a consistency, and if it, if not, you know, he's he's kicking out the the slats. And I think he would find that pretty uh, pretty easily. For um, sure. Yeah. What about? Yeah, I'm curious. This is this is kind of off script, but um, at least in my education, Francis Schaeffer, uh, at least in the seminary, kind of had a, a a big influence, and in, and we would read his writings. I had never been exposed to Francis Schaeffer growing up kind of in the Southern church. Um, is there any overlap between Francis Schaeffer and Leslie Newbegin in terms of their approach to culture? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I heard Francis Schaeffer speak and okay. read his books. It's been, been a while. Uh, I think they would share a lot in terms, obviously, of uh, the fundamentals of, of Christian faith, of, of what it is founded on uh, how we how we present Christ. Um, I, I would say both of them would have a an approach that's similar in this way. Uh, Newbegin, and I can speak more to Newbegin here, but Newbegin really felt that uh, rather than us as Christians uh, just take uh, the view, uh, so to speak, of let's say um, empiricism. Or, mm. or scientific uh, empiricism, and say this is this is how we understand the world. And we're going to put Christianity within that. Um, he really said, "No, uh, we are revelationists. God has spoken supremely in Christ. He has revealed Himself uh, to uh, patriarchs, to prophets, to apostles. We have the Scriptures. Uh, mm. We have we have additional information here. We have uh, revelation. We are revelationists. We have." Uh, insight as to the purpose of humanity that uh, scientism or empiricism, uh, rationalism cannot give us. Right. And so that I'm sure that they would share immediately. Okay. Okay. And so we don't necessarily want to just get into their game. Uh, right. We want to be able to stand outside of that and say we have we have uh, a different uh, source of information. It we we also can share. Uh, information within that world of empiricism. It's not as though we're opposed to that, right? but we have other insights. And right. uh, so I think both of them uh, would, would say that. Uh, Francis Schaeffer talked about uh, a number of, of uh, perspectives on uh, God, uh, God's knowing us, us knowing God, mm. uh, his revelation in the world. So I think that's the point at which they would, they would share. Um, that's great. Our ideas. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the tensions, and I'm going to have uh, Dr. Don Donald Payne from Denver Seminary come and help me um, talk about is that kind of fundamentalist approach where fundamentalism kind of embraced the tools of modernity to defend itself against liberalism. Uh, and then, of course, evangelicalism was a rise out of uh, fundamentalism as a way to better engage, or at least that's what the idea was, better engage the issues of culture. Um, but nowadays, with all the different things like critical theory and other things coming online, I'm tempted to believe what the fundamentalists are saying because uh, sometimes I'm like, gosh, it sounds like, you know, they're standing up for orthodoxy. Um, but as mm -hmm. Christians, that's not, um, it's not as easy as that oftentimes in thinking about how we approach knowledge, how we know what we know, issues of mm -hmm. epistemology and then the missional engagement. It's just very complicated many times. Yeah. Yeah, it is. What about, um, you know, as far as, Church history. I think we talked pre previous or, or prior to getting on air about kind of historical engagement with pagan cultures or just cultures that weren't Christian. And you know, it's odd to talk about that in cultures that have now become post-Christian. So it's obviously has some uh, differences. But what I always like to do is look to church history to see how did other people navigate these issues. Like I, I enjoyed looking to Calvin and the reformers to navigate how to look at how they navigated the Black Plague. And that should kind of like give us some insight as to how the church has engaged issues like coronavirus um, or something like that. Um, but from your perspective, as somebody who studied um, church history and missional engagement, what are, some, what are some instances that come to mind as far as how we could engage culture uh, in, in a way that would be, uh, would be effective? Yeah. 
Well, it's it, the engagement is absolutely necessary for us to have an impact in the world. Uh, it's it's and when when I say an impact, it's the impact for the gospel. To even to communicate mm. the gospel, a certain level of contextualization is mm. is needed. Um, any cross cultural or, or uh, speaking to somebody in a different language. I mean, there's always this idea of contextualization. How do we how do we take uh, the gospel and early in the church it, it was so you know you you, you have these Aramaic Hebrew speaking uh, uh, Jewish converts followers of Jesus in um, in Palestine who begin to to move out and as they're reaching diaspora uh, Jews they have to translate uh, this this message so to speak as they're preaching it you know into Greek and eventually it's written into Greek and that would right. be a part of the 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 Jewish diaspora the the necessity to to do that, and so the idea of contextualization is just always a part of uh, who the church is. And mm. because we have this mandate from Jesus to make disciples of all nations, mm. uh, because we have this this mandate to uh, to take this this gospel message, and what we see actually in even in Acts two is the beginning of that. Um, this this message out it, it requires that we are we are a faith of contextualization. We are translating the scriptures. We are translating the message. We are going into um, uh, contexts where people have different backgrounds, different local cultures, different languages. So so it's always been uh, necessary for for us to do. Uh, the church has done that. There has been debates about how we do this, and this. A number of people, including Keller, like in his book, Center Church, uh, mm. looked at, uh, for the most part, um, uh, H. Richard Niebuhr's typology of Christ and culture, that mm -hmm. idea. Um, he, he takes five categories down to four. Others kind of look at three. I often look at three. Um, and that's that idea of, you know, we kind of just try to reject uh, local culture and society and what, whatever we can, we kind of just stay within ourselves. The other is this full accommodation of just embracing um, uh, local culture and society and, and its ideas and its uh, philosophy so much that we start to lose our Christian identity and the tenets right. of Christian faith, including elements of the gospel itself. And there are examples of that. Hmm. This third way is that one of these, these intermediate or mediating views that H. Richard Niebuhr talked about. Keller hangs on to a couple of these in, in his book, Center Church, but it's this idea of, of a cultural engagement that's done cautiously, but critically. Okay. Meaning we're, we're, we're taking the initiative, we're entering, we are seeking to learn from we are engaging with, we are in conversation with people from broader culture, but we're doing it in a way that's cautious and, and critical, meaning we are not just jumping in like the accommodationist view, but we are being cautious and critical, meaning here thinking critically. So it's not right. like we have a critical attitude. It's just that we no, are, right. we are uh, aware because we don't want to give up necessarily who we are. So, and that's, that's a tension that we have. And the church is, has done that differently. Uh, Tertullian, who is a church father, classic statement. Uh, he said, uh, what has um, Athens to do with Jerusalem? Uh, what does the academy have to do with the church? Okay. And it was this question almost of like philosophy. So yeah. we have the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle. Right. How much does the church borrow from that? Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, Tertullian, uh, you have, you know, kind of a, an argument there early on between Clement of Alexandria and and Tertullian of Carthage, which is Northern Africa. And he's, you know, uh, Tertullian uh, ends up saying, well, we really need to have scripture or the word of God ultimately as our final authority. Hmm. So we can engage, actually, Tertullian ends up coining the, the term Trinity. And uh, so, so he, was, he, he was practicing this, but, but he, he did not ever want to sacrifice the gospel itself or the 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 rudiments of christian teaching um in an engagement uh, right. with a different philosophical system or something that could help us and and that's the idea you know the church has to um we can learn and receive from other uh thinkers uh all truth is god's truth right uh, 
under God's common grace, people have been thinking about things, learning things, and whether they're Christian or not, we can learn. So we can, as the church, receive wisdom right. and get a better perspective of humanity. And we do this all the time, especially with like the social sciences, but we do so holding on to the authority of scripture and For never sure. wishing to compromise the gospel or the mission of the church. Right. So that's kind of that dance that we have to do in this whole thing of contextualization. That's an awesome summary. And that really helps me because uh, when I read Center Church, it was uh, four years ago, I'd been hungry for a missional playbook, so to speak. And so when I read Center Church, I was like, I found it. Like, this helps me uh, figure out. Now, obviously, it's 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 one of many options. Uh, but for, for our church, it's been hugely helpful to at least give us language to articulate better because Keller does a great job of that. Uh, yeah, just absolutely. kind of giving a vision for what what the church could look like, uh, how the ecclesiological uh, practices of a church would be impacted by contextualization. And so I think I think that was really helpful for me uh, to hold that in a, in a right place and really tying it to Tertullian and that that this discussion is just part of the Christian story. This this discussion of how do we engage rightly, even going back to something as uh, simple as Peter and Paul with the issue of engaging uh, with Gentiles and and uh, or eating meat or anything like that. These are part and parcel of us following a, a risen Lord and Savior who came in the flesh, who came to a specific time. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is uh, really important. And, and so far, it's been super helpful for me personally, even if no one else benefits, I've really benefited from what you're sharing. So thank you for that. Um, some of the things, uh, you know, I just wanted to touch on a couple other things in church history, um, whether it's St. Patrick of Ireland or other people who are kind of advancing and and doing the, the Missio Dei, uh, fulfilling the Missio Dei, kind of like advancing the gospel um, and the mission of God in the world, whether it be St. Patrick of Ireland or, or, or even Christians adopting almost pagan rituals and bringing them under the umbrella mm -hmm. of Christianity. Um, what, what were some things that you've noticed about how they did that wisely? Yeah. Uh, one of the most explicit statements on this uh, uh, came uh, from the uh, from Gregory uh, the Great, who was a uh, uh, bishop of Rome, otherwise known as a Latin Pope, when he commissions Augustine, not Augustine of Hippo, but Augustine of Canterbury, which okay. eventually becomes the first sort of Archbishop of, of England, Archbishop of Canterbury. So when he, he commissions Augustine and a group of monks to go from Rome up to reach Anglo-Saxons in England, as well as Aryan Germans, uh, these guys go with fear and trembling and they haven't really thought about mission very much. Sure. Uh, but, but Gregory says to them, uh, he says, uh, when you go, don't destroy the temples, mm -hmm. don't destroy all of the holidays. Um, his, his advice was try to redeem them if you can. Okay. But he did, he did have a, um, an exception. He said, if something's satanic or demonic mm. or, you know, is, is very contrary to anything that's re re redemptive hmm. that you should do away with. Okay. And so that was his advice. So for the most part, and this happens early on, uh, but you also see it, uh, through, um, well, a number of places I give several examples of this, but but when the gospel went somewhere, um, when there was conversion of of people from their paganism to Christianity, the idea was take that um, that pagan temple and convert it mm -hmm. into uh, a church. So if you've okay. if you've been to Athens, you know the, you have the Parthenon. The Parthenon has yeah. interestingly been both you know a, a Greek temple. Okay. Um, pagan temple. It has been a um, church. It's also been a mosque. In wow. other words, these religious high places would often serve as a sort of um, symbol for uh, the power of, of, of a faith. And so often that's why for, Greg, uh, for Gregory the Great and, and his monks, uh, if they uh, came into contact with a chapel like Boniface does in Germany, and uh, there's a there's a sort of a power encounter, and then there's uh, uh, a conversion of sorts. But they would actually convert uh, a former pagan site to become a Christian site, and that okay. really demonstrated the 
the supremacy of Christ. It demonstrated the power of the gospel. Mm. It demonstrated the conversion. Yeah. So, so, uh, but this, if, if that, if there's a true conversion, if there's a true conversion that works well, if it's a forced conversion by coercion or whatever, then it wouldn't, then you ended up with a syncretism. Right. Sorts. And so you kind of have these two things operating at once, but For uh, sure. you really needed to see um, a transformation, people receiving the gospel, uh, a supplanting or displacing of their, of their previous worldview, if that was paganism right. and the worship of Wooden and Thor and all of these other pagan gods, uh, and, and, and accepting of Christ. And they started thinking, now they're, they're thinking they have the gospel, uh, they're reflecting on the gospel, they're being taught, catechized, and learning about Jesus and, and being transformed. There's a renewing of their mind that's taking place, which does begin to shape a new worldview. That was very, very, very powerful. But that's why I think that um, Gregory said that. And of course, you know, we've seen that happen in other places too. There's not always, whatever we can baptize, so to speak, or whatever we can redeem, mm -hmm. so to speak, for Christ and maybe infuse new meaning, we should, we should do that rather than simply take it away. Um, mm. Missiologists and I could talk a long time about this have, have noticed this too. If you don't, either, either if you do not somehow give new meaning to something pagan, if you simply remove it, it it's there's mm. still a void. There's still sort of mm. this this cultural void of people's rhythms. This this goes from society to society, and often they would try to fill that with something else. And so sure. that's the reason why missionaries have, have often followed uh, this idea, or at least some practice. Uh, and it's it has to do with contextualization. Yeah, yeah, that's super helpful and interesting. I, I I'm very curious now to learn more about kind of that missionary impetus that uh, Boniface issued to them, mm -hmm. and how that might affect uh, our attitudes today, because we're inheritors of that kind of movement of the gospel. Um, but something that uh, that you mentioned actually kind of brings us to a, a broader topic today of critical theory mm -hmm. in the sense that when an ideology is removed, there's a void and something else longs to take its place. It's almost like a, uh, a power dynamic in a cultural uh, context or society where you have this longing for a transcendent experience and... Uh, and yeah, so I'm, I'm, the reason I'm interested in that is a lot of, or at least the podcast you kind of shared with me, mentioned that people are looking in our context and our culture, and at least in American society, for a kind of a higher engagement. Now, I know that critical theory is, a, is kind of a hot topic right now, um, but as far as, you know, you're a missiologist, you've studied church history, you've done all this work, what, what are some principles we could take as Christians into our current cultural uh, dialogue about uh, these hot button issues. What are some things we might be able to to learn to better engage in the conversation? Yeah, yeah. Uh, great question. the The need of the hour is, I think, for Christians to actually know uh, more about critical theory. And critical theory has a number of subcategories, um, uh, which impacts a number of different what are considered marginalized groups. So it could right. be LGBT community, which would be more like related to queer theory. Um, you would have uh, women, which would re be related to more like new wave feminism issues. Um, and then you have uh, issues related to race or ethnicity, which hmm. deals with critical race theory. So you have these categories. I think just to, to have a better understanding for most Christians, this is kind of new. Although in terms of in missiology, we started talking about post-modernity in, in the 1990s, and you know, it kind of hit in some ways the church heavy at the beginning of uh, the 2000s. You know, kind of peaking about 2006 or so, and thinking it was kind of in the intellectual world, and now it's kind of come uh, very much in terms of it's 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 been diffused or you know disseminated. It's almost ubiquitous, ubiquitous. right? It's like everywhere. And uh, I, we're actually, I'm engaged with a, a couple of other colleagues and people looking at, at just how this has uh, gained such a foothold, but it mm. has, obviously, it's almost like the air we breathe. Mm. 
but, but understanding what is critical theory. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it came out of post-modernity, so it doesn't have necessarily, we, you know, we as missiologists have learned a lot from the social sciences, psychology, sociology, cultural anthropology. And mm -hmm. what I said earlier is, is very true. We, we want to learn from them, but at some point, uh, there's something that maybe is said that would be contrary to our Christian convictions, to the gospel itself, mm. our mission uh, to make disciples. And so we have to reject that at that point. So, so that's kind of our approach. We want to learn, use what we can, but at some point uh, we have to, um, to kind of put the, the stops to it. Well, in terms of sociology, psychology, cultural anthropology, there's still, right now, there's a big divide between the old modernist perspective that there is a um, grand narrative. There is something called objective truth, right. where in the, in the uh, in, you know, even earlier, the 80s, the 90s, uh, postmodernists, the postmodern uh, thinkers, um, began to really reject that view, and we've known that. We've talked about tribal truth. We've mm. talked about these sort of, you know, what's true for one group. I have a, a chapter in the book that I've written called "Gospel Witness," um, called "Gospel Praxis in a Pluralist Society," and look at some of this. Okay, um, this idea of of postmodernity and and how people, you know, have rejected. Uh, certain pieces. Well, this is just, it seems full blown right now, Chase. Right. And uh, so I think for Christians to know uh, what is critical theory and, um, you know, there are roots obviously um, in Marxism. Uh, that was more of an economic. We see um, later more of a social applications. Uh, this has been nuanced and, and through a, a number of of processes as we've you know been talking about but the the point is is that right now there seems to be this void mm. um within our society what was left by in for many people a a liberal mainline protestantism or a mainline christendom with with a increasingly post-christendom that is gone right. and it seems to be f uh, filled in certain applications now let me defend critical theory to some degree here sure we can learn um, from certain concepts uh, that are being presented today, I believe. Hegemony, for example, I think is a helpful concept. We use that quite a bit. Mm. Um, as a historian, I have applied postmodern historiography to a degree. Um, like the book that I've just written, I, I love to get out of sort of the Western narrative and look at indigenous peoples in other parts of the world. I like the micro-narrative that that post-modern uh, historiography uh, presents. But there is a, an application that's going on right now that the, the ideology um, that's under, the, the presupposition that's based upon is extremely uh, influenced by what we'd call a, you know, neo, or many people are calling a neo-Marxism or a cultural Marxism. Right. And uh, it, it, it is challenging uh, the church, and this is where Christians, I think, have to be more discerning. And there are churches, or ch Christians and churches, pastors that are very discerning, and I think there are others that are not. And right. uh, I, I don't know how much we want to talk about it, but you know, the the oppressor oppressed categories of critical mm. theory uh, places people into these categories by the, by virtue of your your social location. Right. your race, your gender, uh, your sexual um, uh, orientation, or, or your, your natural uh, sex. And, and then there, so, so that immediately makes you either an oppressed or an oppressor, and the more oppressed you are, the more um, moral authority you have and those kinds of right. things. Uh, the issue is that, that Christians have really uh, just kind of bought into this and don't understand the difference between the the uh, the word like oppressed or oppressor uh, from critical theory and the biblical examples of oppression right. or oppressed. Um, we talk about guilt also. A lot of times Christians just think guilt always has to do some something with what I've done. Mm. Well, in critical theory, you don't have to do anything. You know, you are mm. you are guilty just by being of a certain social location, a certain race, a certain privileged, right. a, a certain privileged race, um, 
and uh, so you would be in, a, in a, an oppressor category in that case. So uh, it, it's just really gotten, I think, confusing for a lot of people. And I, I think at this point, we just need some real discernment and grace. Right. Um, and, and again, it's kind of like, what can we identify with? What language can we use to communicate? Right. Um, what is helpful? And then what is not helpful? The other is what is consistent with the gospel or helps us maybe live out our mission. And the other thing is what about critical theory is actually destructive? Right. Um, There's ways that, you know, simply a, a gospel explanation that would be within, let's say, the reformed tradition would be considered maybe oppressive or somehow seen as a, a means to subjugate uh, oppressed groups. I mean, that's how right. it's being used today. When we right. would say as Christians, this is the good news of Jesus that liberates, that sets people free. Yeah, sets a captive free for sure. Yeah, yeah it's confusing times for sure. You know, if, um, gosh, there's so much to talk about here. I'm writing, uh, part of my thesis was on postmodern thought, um, and I am not uh, well-read enough to actually write a book on it, but I but I am, unfortunately for everyone. Um, but I'll be sharing kind of my thoughts on that. I was just editing it this morning. And the reality is, Christians, is there are things that we want to learn from postmodernism. We should be uh, in tune with it. And, and most people aren't afforded the opportunity, like you and I, to read and study uh, for great lengths of time. But I think that, it, you know, as you start picking up on these ideologies at work, as Christians, we can always go to the Word of God. We can we can check that. We can read biblically. Hey, you know what? There are some things biblically that that resonate with this. And that's what I did. That's part of the reason I started this podcast in the first place was to have more nuanced conversations. Because typically, what what's happening out there, whether it's from pulpits or Facebook or whatever it is, are very unnuanced and uncritical uh, engagement with this idea. Because a lot of Christians are eager to to stand up for justice, which which is good and a good desire, but how we do that and how we witness in the public square is so, uh, so important. Um, if there's anything that you would wish for churches, wish for pastors like me or, or Christians at large, you know, you, you said, uh, no critical theory, study it more. What's, what's something that if somebody listened to this and said, okay, I want to do that. How, how do I do that better? How can I, uh, learn about this stuff more? Um, what, what would you recommend to people? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know in terms of issues at the moment, uh, what you could immediately turn to. I mean, I've been learning probably like you from just listening to a lot of podcasts, uh, people talking about it. Um, I have found uh, in one, you know, I, Coleman Hughes is a name I'll say, mm. uh, not necessarily a Christ follower. This is what's right. interesting about this. There, there's a whole movement of people kind of in the older mo- modernist, even, uh, well, what I'll say a liberal modernist um, worldview, right. who are concerned about things going farther right. in the direction toward post-modernity. And they're actually, uh, so Christians are, are you know, we're kind of in the same world with this particular group of people that are concerned as well. Right. So, um, you know, I have found uh, Coleman Hughes really helpful just okay. as a person of color, African-American uh, scholar, uh, Columbia graduate. Uh, he, he was a journalist at Colette now, um, City Journal. I've just found uh, him to, to be gracious and, um, very balanced. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I mean, I'd agree with everything he says, but but he's a voice that that I would listen to um, at this at this stage. That's great. Well, you're one of the voices I'm listening to. And so I appreciate you being here, uh, kind of chatting with me about this and, and anything you have to share. Um, I'm, I'm here for it. And I'm listening. I'm, I'm looking to learn. Um, and, you know, as all of us as Christians, we want to be people that are able to step into uh, contentious issues and bring the gospel to bear and do so in an articulate way. Um, and and I found myself in the same position. I'm like, why am I agreeing with atheists? This, I don't understand what I'm agreeing with people that I never thought I would agree with on issues that I wouldn't think I would agree on, um, which is why I'm so passionate about having conversations regarding epistemology and mission and missionality. Um, it's because I'm hoping Christians can benefit from learning more, not just 
I, I hate the tribalism, whether it's uh, labeling things. And therefore, if you believe this, you are out. You know, we cannot relate. I'm like, that is that is an anti-gospel attitude. We should be able to sit at the table. And even if we disagree on some stuff, if we're Christians, we should find common ground and move forward together. So um, that's what my hope for this podcast would be. And I think you've you've helped us uh, for whoever's listening do that um, better. Um, so thank you so much for just spending time with me talking about this stuff. You're welcome. Glad and, to uh, be a part of this, Chase. Yeah, for sure. And hopefully we'll have you back um, as things kind of unfold because there's just, you have done a lot of work on this research stuff that I, I could just listen to and just, Hey, let's talk about Gregory. Let's talk about, and, and just hear from you. Uh, cause that saves me time. Cause I don't have to go read a book about it. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, I think you just had a book come out last year. Is that right? Yeah. The, um, the book gospel witness, uh, the subtitle is evangelism and word and deed. So it is a uh, kind of a nuts and bolts book on evangelism. It's a book I use as a textbook here at Trinity. It's published by Erdman's. Um, I I really gleaned a lot from New Begin, um, okay. and, and because of my church history background as well, there's there's a lot of historical uh, references as well and examples. Uh, so um, yeah, it's uh, it's available through Erdman's, and uh, you know I. I, I hope people can use it and are would benefit from it. For sure. And it's called Gospel Witness? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And and I'm assuming you can find it on Amazon as well? Yeah, you can. Okay, can. great. Well, thank you so much for the time. Um, if you are listening and you're interested in more content like this, I would encourage you to describe, subscribe to this podcast uh, or the YouTube channel where you're going to find this content as well. Um, uh, we're, we're scheduling our next guest, Dr. Donald Payne at Denver Seminary, professor of theology, systematic theology and spiritual formation. And the topic I want to get him to speak on is fundamentalism and modernity and how we can uh, how that conversation in the early 20th century might inform how we go about thinking about these issues today. But, uh, but thank you so much for being with us today and we will see you next time.